1: Hello, this is Jules and Jim's joyride. Step on board. He's like a real-life Citizen Kane. A breathing, living, publishing tycoon and ruthless editor. Yet he's as soft and supple as a lady's glove or, <laughs> or an evening wind murmuring amongst willows. And he is <laughs> James Brown. Oh, very nice to have huh? James Brown really like here. that? Yes.
2: Yeah, yes. Good it's morning. Great man. Yes, it's
1: very yeah. nice to have you. Oh, good him. evening, whatever time you're listening, really. Such an accurate description. It is quite accurate, isn't it? One of the first times I'm, uh, I met you james you were firing people willy-nilly at the at the nme well we were making it better you know <laughs> we were making it better the
3: people i was bringing in a stuart mcconi marianne hobbs people like that yeah. you know but when we first met was i came to the albany empire because a, a fella called ted who was a a, peer, a pr guy in the music industry said you've got to come and see this comedian He's brilliant. And we came down on a Sunday night and Julian was there. Jonathan Ross was there. And, and who quite was a, Quite a few. But I think, yeah, just, you were outside. <laughs> I was in the queue as and well. And those were the days when you had the big show with, yeah. obviously with Bob and with the guy who had coins and, and things dropping out of his pockets, Kingy. And,
1: <laughs> and my band, I had a band yeah, then And well.
3: Dorian, who played the tough. Yeah. And it was a big ensemble show. And then we put you on the front of the NME not long yeah. after that.
1: At about the same time, for some reason, I was with you, Jules, uh, in Newcastle, and Squeeze were on, and you disappeared completely, vanished from sight, and everyone was waiting for Squeeze to go on. So I said to Glenn, I'll just, you introduce me as Jules and and pretend. (laughs) Knowing full well, as I was walking on that I'm not going to be able to play a tune at all here. So uh, here on the piano, Jules Holland. And then I walked out, and everyone went. Eh, what? Who's he? <laughs> and then, fortunately, at the final moment, you came running up a corridor to the side, clutching a pile of pizzas. Um, why would I have pizzas? Was I, was I feeding don't the have band? You to get pizzas for, for everybody. Taken far too long.
2: <laughs> are you a keen traveller? Are you? Do you like to? I uh, love travel. What's your? And uh, do you, Are you? A, are you a motorist? I am a motorist.
3: I don't really know much about cars. I just like driving pretty fast. Too Do you fast? How fast? The really? fastest I've gone is 150 no. in a Bentley for the green fields of France on the way to see Leeds United versus Troyes. It was a car that uh, Jack Barclay, I think they were called, had sent me over to see if I fancied buying one. Or did it, which or I don't know why they... When you edit a magazine, people send you stuff all the time to feature in the magazine. He'd sent this car over to the office when i edited a magazine called jack so three or four of my mates and i piled into this car and as we put it on the train at ashford to get just through the tunnel i remember the security guys looking at all the you know the kind of the guy said, oh, I said they turned to one of my mates and they said delivering it boys <laughs> and they said no it's his and they looked at me with my scruffy hair and old t-shirt and shorts and they the look of contempt was mixed with the look of confusion. So
1: why were you tearing through France at such a ridiculous road was empty. Speed.
3: People didn't want to go on the payage.
2: No, but that's no excuse, just because the road was empty. Did you tell that to the, to the magistration or whoever they were? No, no, we yeah. were fine. There was, oh. there was
3: no speeding ban and there was nothing there. The strange thing, when my mate Johnny said, "You, this I bet this is really easy, isn't it? I said, no, it's really hard. We're driving like a tonne and a half of metal at 150 miles an hour. I mean, years later, I was clearing out a filing cabinet. I found the contract, the PR contract, on receipt of that.
2: In massive red letters, it said, not to be taken out of the country. (laughs) (laughs) Especially not at speed. Of course, the gendarmes can be very strict, and I I could be wrong, but I think in Switzerland, if you get done for uh, going too fast, they take... Proportion of your wages. So if you're very rich, it could be a great deal of money. But what, what in France, percentage? I think 97% of it, <laughs> 90% of your entire net worth is taken away if you're two miles an hour of speed limit. Which is why they don't have any problems. So you not, we'll do that, or we'll take your head. Yes, exactly. Yeah, but of course, in Germany, on the autobahn, at the moment. You can go as fast as humanly possible, mm. except if they, if they, if there's some restriction like there is here, like you know, fifty mile or fifty kilometers a bit or whatever. And you don't do that, then it's the same thing. You're taken off and you're never seen again because they're very strict. So it all works rather well there.
3: When I was very young, I used to drive in Los Angeles without a license or anything. I used to, I was. I'm not one for structure.
1: <laughs> I remember, I think I was, I was driving around with you in Los Angeles. Yeah. A, a unlicensed old... driving around. What, yeah. Was it unlicensed? No, license. We were driving
3: one time, I think, with Tim Green, who was a road manager or a roadie or something for the cult. He That's had a big right, yeah. black
1: Plymouth. We went with um, Derek Ridges to the Seven Veils strip joint. Yeah, Derek liked thought, that sort of thing. And I was thinking, why are you taking me here to this scene? I was joint? the same.
2: That's not my <laughs>
1: scene. But, but you know Derek Ridges, Photographer, yes. Yeah, yeah. but well, he was going to the Seven Veils to take photographs, presumably. He was, yeah. But he dragged us along with him. Mm. He liked that sort of subculture
3: of sex and voyeurism and scarification. That and was whatever. a very
1: seedy place, though.
3: But popular with the bands, apparently.
1: Oh, was it? But was it? Was there, was there ample parking? Because this is about transport. <laughs> 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 there was, uh, yeah. What's the mo- what's the most fa- most famous pop star's car you've ever been in? Uh, probably Bono.
3: Well, he wasn't in the car; it was his van out of the desert.
1: He's got an old van.
3: With what your- sort of van? I was with your friend Andy Delaney. We went to see you two in uh, Anaheim and uh, this was after i'd left the enemy so i spent many years in vans with, with with bands and it's an interesting dynamic because you see the pecking order of who really runs the band not the front not the lead singer is the normally the person that gets to sit in the front of the van with the driver
2: or in the tour bus the grand yeah. street the
3: grand room at the back exactly so the same it's pretty much the same thing no matter how High the band was the old rituals, the routines. They in the same the Bedford van. Yeah, they're, they're, Well, this—I was in a minibus with U2. I'd been on the plane with them. I was covering them. It was about 1992 or three. I was covering them for the Sunday Times on the front cover of the magazine. They—they they got. I liked U2 when they started, and then I didn't like it when he got a little bit sweaty and baggy t-shirted and be hatted. And then when they did "Act Chung Baby, I thought it was a brilliant record. And I spent some time with them. I realized the reason it was great was because they were on the verge of breaking up. And it was a conflict record. It was about, it was was the different musical elements of the band dragging in different directions that have made a great record. So I went on tour on the Zoo Roper tour with them. And Andy, your friend and I went down to see them in Anaheim. I had all of these different passes, great passes uh been in las vegas been in new york been in germany with them ireland so i had the whole load of our laminates and, and the pr said listen james tonight they've got some special guests so they're gonna have a proper vip area so i thought okay so the front of the um the stage where the, the monitors were the the sound desk way back from the stage was where the proper vips were and i just worked out if i licked two different laminates and stuck them together that gave me that night's required VIP. And the crew had seen me in there, so I just flashed the new, hastily spat together laminates, got in there. The, the least famous person in that room, were, were in, in that area, were Kraftwerk. It was like what, they'd gone
1: to see you too? Jack
3: Nicholson was in there, Axel Rose, lots of very, very world-famous people. But at the, the end they, of the had night-
2: they, Had they all done that with their partners? <laughs> yeah. The backs of the but at the end together?
3: of the night, Delaney had left. We'd got separated because this is before the the era of mobile phones. we'd got separated when I'd gone in and he'd gone somewhere else, and the night got on, went on and, on and on and on and on, and they were in the tent with their special friends, a lot of them you'd be seen on catwalks and um at the end of the night, they saw me just up there. I had no idea I was not I wasn't sober, it's fair to put it, and uh, they kind of came to me and said, "How are you getting home I said don't know. And they said, okay, come on. And they put me, and it was a minibus. It wasn't, it was a really small minibus. So that would be, I think, the most famous rock star's car I'd been no, in. No, it, was it was great because minibus. it was just like being, it wasn't a big tour bus, a double decker or luxury. It was a proper minibus, like a football team or a, a very young rock and roll band would go back
1: in. Well, look at that. that, about that. I, mean, I remember seeing them in 1979 at the half moon in Herne Hill and they were bottled off people were chucking things out well
2: curious enough squeeze did play with them <coughs> at the uh, what was that pub in islington the um, oh what was it called oh i know the one uh, you made uh, the old um... the, help the hope and anchor hope and anchor yes <coughs> so sorry, sorry so we squeeze played with them at the hope and anchor and the audience was four people and one by one they all left <laughs> uh and then there's a bloke and a dog and then the bloke left and left the dog there and then the dog left <laughs>
3: Before I started Loaded, I was researching a book that I was going to call Fifty Ways to Leave Your Liver, which was great drinking stories, and naturally, that content became part of, of the magazine. But I have found a story of um, uh, an old soul band who'd piled off the edge of the Pacific Coast Highway. They all died. Just a touring band. They weren't a famous band with no. hits. And when the police went there, they found the van. It was full of bottles of vodka. And they were looking at the crime scene and they knew there was something wrong and they couldn't work out what it was. And eventually they realized nobody was driving. (laughs) They were all so pissed. Whoever was probably fighting over a bottle had climbed into the back of the van. There was nobody in the driver's seat, and nobody had got
2: out and gone away. Of course, now Roland Rivron um, uh, did a very good book, which he, where he interviewed because he couldn't remember anything that had happened to him. He interviewed people about events in his life, and if, and they they sort of told him what had happened on certain days because he couldn't really remember. Like Bernard, I think did yes. the same, yeah. Uh, and um, and so uh, so he was it was sort of put that together. And you you you, you travel with Roland, I believe. I did travel with Roland.
3: I got asked to go on this show for Channel Four which was to do some sort of extreme well-being course. And I, they showed me all the different ones.
2: I was very worried for a moment because you were saying, extreme, I think, is it going to be where you'll sort of have to eat insects or something horrid like that? But no, extreme well-being. Well, we we Roland, what
3: happened was they said, do you want to do yoga at the top of the Himalayas? And I thought, oh, yeah, maybe give that a go. That sounds quite good. But I wasn't too sure. And they said, I said, who else is going? They said, Roland Rivon. I said, yep. So uh, I'm definitely going. And we went over there. And we had, we were right up on the edge of the Himalayas in Himachal Pradesh, and but to get there, we had to go on this road. Which years later, I turned the television on. It was on the, that documentary series, "The World's Most Dangerous Roads." I started shaking. It was like the boss in the Pink Panther seeing this fucking road that we'd been on. And we were like Roland and I were on the edge of the minibus, and there was no, there was no fence. There was no fence. It was just an, a road, like, a, like a ledge up the mountain. And we were having to go along this. And we were, we were looking out, and it was just looking down, like looking over the edge of a tower block. And it was absolutely terrifying. We were screaming. We Not in hilarity, in fear. The tyres of the car were all bald. The van were bald. Eventually, we got kind of through this pass, and we got down to what looked like a fairly safer road you know it was double there were two lanes there was a fence we got out thank god for that we went to the edge and sort of looked over this beautiful valley and i said hold on whatever you do don't look down he said why not so i said just don't look down we're going to get back in the car and go this was the safe bit he looked down there were just car crashes vans (laughs) buses all just off the edge of the cliff so that, that was the start of what was a very funny, very, very funny week. where We had to do this extreme yoga detox at the top of, top of a mountain in the Himala- edge of the Himalayas. I've seen those roads, the most dangerous road
1: in the world, and I love watching
3: them. It was them, genuinely but, uh, terrifying. I'm making light of it, but I think there's a few times I thought I might die in, tra- in travel. I was in Tanzania once in a light aircraft coming back, really tiny plane. And the runway had been just a field and we were flying to Dharam Salah and the, um, we, were in a, we were in a thunderstorm. And all I could think was, why won't he just go a bit lower? Why wouldn't he get where the rain is? We were actually in the clouds and I spent about 30 to 40 minutes of that journey thinking, there's a good chance I'm going to die. We're going to get hit by lightning or something's going to happen here. It was the most terrifying experience It was just, it was the second time that week that I thought I might die. Because days before, I'd been on this very small safari trip and uh, the guide had had taken this huge open-sided Land Rover, and rammed it. He was following this lion around. The lion was having sex. He was mating. <laughs> he's never, this
2: never f- follow a, 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 a lion's lion,
3: ever. Well, see, this is his everyday job, but I could tell the lion was getting annoyed.
2: And I'm he, surprised if his everyday and he job... Tried he tried
3: to get into this. this... He was driven into this ditch area to where the lion was just hanging out with his lady lion. And the lion was sort of snarling and growling. So he went round the other one. I thought, oh, good, we're leaving. And he just went down to the other side... I'm trying to get in, and he got the car stuck under what was like a, an apple tree, a gnar- or an olive tree, an old gnarled, very low-branched tree. And he couldn't get it out. And this lion got up and started walking round and round and round. And he'd said to us, "Don't move! Don't anyone move! You'll think it's a bigger animal." This lion was just lion was walking round right next to us, like snarling, frothing, mid-sexual behaviour. I mean, how would you feel if you were having sex oh, in the country <laughs> and all the tourists arrived? Have you have you, have, it's,
2: have, it's
1: you, have Happened had... so many times. <laughs>
2: <Yes>. <laughs> have you, I mean, have, i mean, had just... many experiences of of, uh, of of
1: a lion in a highly uh, erotic and char- uh, sexually charged state. Do you, do you know what I actually have? I was on a, in, on a safari. There were several lions having, well uh, what looked like an orgy. Yeah. In a car. In a, car, thing, in a car? No, there we I was in, a, oh, I was in a an open-topped vehicle, actually. You mean the lions were dogging? <laughs> they were lioning? Yeah, lioning. They were catting? And, uh, but anyways, the, 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 nothing particularly happened. I wasn't that interested. I hold on, on, there was a lion orgy, but it was, wasn't <laughs> interesting. <laughs> I mean, if you want to go down this line... Yeah, go down the lion was, orgy. A, there was a huge group of baboons there, like about a thousand of them in this group, and he said they said, they have orgies. They actually get it all on together.
2: A thousand baboons
1: bu- yeah, <laughs> having an orgy.
2: I've never heard anything <laughs> like this in my
1: life. But he said <laughs> when when they have an orgasm it sounds very human. So then I said, X-rated well, in that case now I'm interested can we hang around a bit longer?
2: Get your tape recorder out. <laughs> And now a message from our sponsors.
1: Is my BMX safe outside? The last time I came, I inadvertently chained it to a seeking helicopter which flew away to Dennis Waterman's secret castle on an island in the North Sea.
2: You, you shall go to Specsaver. <laughs>
3: <laughs> There's a very good book called... Something along the lines of the Pan Book of Terrible Travel Experiences. It's yeah. a it's a great book. It's it's travel writing. It's available
1: at every airport. Every <laughs> no, but it's, it's travel. It's a
3: compendium of travel writing of when things were difficult. So Graham Greene is in it as a reporter being dragged across a Mexican desert in in the early 20th century, suffering from intense dehydration, thinking he's going to die. He wrote about that. And there was there's there's, there's another guy called. Um, Peregrine somebody who was walking around with the Mujahideen around well, round Afghanistan when they were fighting the Russians. It's, it's, it's a fantastic travel book. Uh, I read it up in the, on a different trip to the Himalayas, and it was a tatty old book. I went away and bought it. And uh, I read the rest of the book that... Uh, I forget, Peregrine Hudson, I think his name, it was called Under a Sickle Moon. And his story of walking... I assume that he was a spy... To have got the access he was, but he his story of walking round. Why would you go on a guided tour of the Afghan mountains with the Mujahideen whilst in the middle of a battle with the Russians?
2: Mind you, it's quite a good time because you it's, there's no tourists. See, so you get you get all the yeah, all oh, it was oh, fantastic, darling, there were yeah. no tourists <laughs> at all. <laughs> but uh, you were talking about uh, holiday coincidences or travel coincidences because you can often be in remote places in the middle of nowhere, and yeah. if somebody turns up who you, who you sort of. Your next door neighbour sort of, yeah, or something like that. Well, we were chatting about coincidences outside,
3: and on that tour that I was on with you two, Bono likes a drink, and I used to like a drink. I would be in my late 20s, this one. It's a terrible drink, like vodka and orange. In America, they call it a screwdriver, but it used to be a popular drink. And it would, it would just devastate you because the drink, the, the orange was sweet and a vodka in America, they give you two or three shots as a normal drink. And we'd been in a nightclub after you two had uh, played in Vegas. And Bono and I were just sitting up on the on the balcony drinking. We had 24 of these drinks, which 24? were triples. They were triple vodkas. I went back to the hotel. I puked my guts up. I actually had alcoholic gastritis when I came back. And so I was in possibly the worst state I'd ever been in. And so I landed in uh, Los Angeles. I called my mate who I thought I'd stay with and he wasn't in. And again, it was before mobile. So I thought, fuck, what am I gonna do? I feel so terrible. I'm gonna have to go and book a hotel. I'll go to the one John Belushi died in. That looks pretty good. It's the which Sunday... Was? It's the Chateau Marmont.
1: The Marmont, Because
3: yeah. normally when, you, when I was on the enemy, they'd put you in the Led Zeppelin place, the Riot House, or maybe the Mondrian. And I used, I used to love going to LA in my later years as enemy writer. I thought, I'll go to the Chateau Marmont, which is a big, beautiful old castle. And I thought, having decided to spend the Sunday Times' money on a big hotel, I thought, I didn't actually have much cash on me, so I thought, I'll get the shuttle bus these tiny minibuses that go round and round the airport picking up guests to go to specific hotels and, and, and areas. I was chatting to this old couple who'd been in Italy on a, on a holiday just for some comfort really, some interaction. And this woman got on and she was half Italian, it's American-Italian. And she just joined in the conversation and she, she said she was staying at the chateau. So we got out and I said, look, I really didn't fancy being in the room on my own there. And they didn't have a restaurant or a bar there at that point. I said, do you want to go for dinner? And I didn't fancy anything. I just genuinely didn't want to be in a hotel on my own. I felt so bad. She said, sure. She said, I live in Little Italy in in New York. I said, "Oh, I used to stay there quite a lot. She said, "Uh, where? And I, I said, well, I lived just on the corner of sort of Mulberry and whatever the other street was. She said, well, I actually live just on that corner. She said, I live opposite Ferrer's, I think it was called, which is a famous old bakery. Oh, another that's strange. That's where I used to... I used to stay right opposite there. So you got to be like, this is, at this point, I'm with a woman I've never met before, I've got no connection professionally with. I would never have normally been in a shuttle bus or I wouldn't have been chatting to strangers. And I said, that's exactly where I stayed, right opposite the lights of that shop. And she said... Um, you stayed in my flat. You um, know how Americans are prone to want things to be true, like when they tell you their heritage and things. They're very definite about it. And I was thinking, well, I don't know. She said, I'm sure you stayed in my flat because, she was convinced, she said, because I bought it from somebody in the music industry. And I said, well, who did you get it from? She said, oh, a guy that worked at this record label. And I thought, well, the guy I stayed with was a guy called... Paul Smith and then I realised that Paul's label was part of Daniel Miller's label Mute which in fact had a deal with the company she'd said in America
2: So she'd viewed the flat, you weren't in your pants with a
3: scooter parts No, no she you was, she, she owned this flat and so I said well, I was still a bit sceptical it was the enthusiasm for the coincidence that, that put me off and I said well why don't we ask each other something about the flat that's unique to it and she said to me what is on the walls going oh. all the way up? And I said, oh, old Mexican religious art. She said, yes. Oh. And I said, what's at the top of the very top of the stairs? She says, a massive black cage. And I went, yeah. It was
2: bizarre. That's really strange. I like this testing. It's like, you know, it was it's re- like when you come back in somebody else's body and we've all done that, you know, and they don't believe it's you and you say you have but, to tell them something personal. you know. no that's, doubt.
3: That's, that's really. But also the ideal thing would have been we'd fallen in love and begin but you know we just we had dinner we went back to our separate rooms and, and did then you we ever went see off. Her again? never saw her again don't know her name didn't have a business card was she a ghost no she was a real person but it if... made me wonder how often that happens and you don't yes. know
2: oh uh, i see yeah how so, often well,
1: you sit next to somebody that you might later be married to or a lot of it, my my dad has well he had because he's dead now but he had a lot of um, relations um cousins and so forth in australia and he was he was out in, in the lake district he was driving back and stopped at a petrol station as well as these two australians who said to him we're looking for a, for a place called darlington and he said well that's where i live it's I'm big going city a family, and funny said, place. And they, they were looking for me Dad. no at a, a petrol station in the middle of the lake district just nowhere near talking. Darlington, no. No, nowhere near. And that it worked out that he was, <laughs> he, was his, my dad's cousin who was looking for him. he never met before. So they all went back to me mum and dad's house for a cup of tea. And you were know, talking about this. reminded me that the Hotel Marmont. I was in there once. And I stood at the bar and there was this fella next to me. And he's going, hey, baby! And I was going, "What's he, who is he? Who's this bloke? Hey, baby! Give me a room coke." Hey! And I was thinking, calm down. I turned around and it was Little Richard. Oh, how lovely. So well, right he, lived, he
3: lived in the hotel next door, mm, there which, we are. which was the higher? the And then he the his house. leg up
1: on the bar as well. But he
3: could do that because he was so fit.
1: Yeah, he was very supple.
3: Yes. <laughs> so Derek, you mentioned Derek Ridges earlier. Yeah. And Derek and I would spend a, a lot of time in Los Angeles and California, San Francisco, profiling bands. And he told me a story about... Seeing little Richard in the in the in the hotel which he li- lived in and which was the Hyatt House, the, uh, the Riot House, but the Hyatt on Sunset, and he he said that he was at the bar and he was just chatting. This this guy who was just chatting to him, really friendly, nice guy, and they were just chatting along. And little Richard came in and Derek went, "Wow, look, it's little little Richard." And the guy said to him, "I know him. Drop me. Wanna meet him?" So he called him over. And said, "Richard, come and meet this. Is, this is what's your name?" He goes, "It's Derek." He goes, "How are you?" How are you? It was only a while later that Derek realised he saw a photograph of Bobby Womack in a magazine in Q or something like that, and the guy who he'd been having the casual chat with in the bar was Bobby Womack, and he'd never, you know, he didn't say, ah, I'm Bobby Womack, as Little Richard would have done. So
2: it, it, Bobby Womack
3: introduced him to Little Richard?
2: Yeah, but he hadn't know. really, because he... I said, didn't you realise
3: it was Bobby Womack? And he said "He was, was there was nothing about him that said... I'm different to you. I'm better, or you know, any of that stuff. That there's, there was nothing. He was just every day totally down to earth, just a traveller. And it's I like it when you meet people at hotels on that trip that he is describing. I was uh, up at the Sunset Marquee watching uh, L Seven, which, which wasn't a band I liked, and I came back to the hotel I think to get more grass. Went back to that hotel and there was a couple there. It was late at night. I was with a woman called Inga Laurie. It was um, she was in some sort of trashy punk style band. And there was this there was this couple. that had clearly met at a convention. They were both in work suits and had those tags. And they were desperately trying to check in to have sex. <laughs> I was looking at them. I was really stoned. I was just getting the key to the room. I was looking. I was thinking that looks really frustrating. So I said, come here. I said, what? And they said, come here. I said, look, I'm going out. You can have my room. And they went, what? I said, I'm just going to go out and go out. I'm probably out all night. And they went, really? I said, yes, I gave these strangers my key. I got what I needed to get out of the room. I gave my key and I went back.
1: With all your stuff in the room.
3: <laughs> and it was like, oh, you know, nightly. by the time it finished, you know, the show had finished at about one o'clock in the morning and we'd been to a few bars and stuff. I had to go. That was it. There was... There was it, and I knew there was another enemy. This was just after I'd left the enemy. I knew there was another enemy writer in the building, Yestin. So I managed to find out what room he was in and wake him up. I just thought I was doing the people a good turn. He said I was insane that people could take my passport. I went in the next morning. You know those hotel rooms in America? They got double, the twin rooms. You got two double beds. Yes. Thankfully, the bed I wasn't sleeping in was sheets everywhere. There was conditioner bottles. Stains on the but wall. But the guy left like it, but typical American. The, the, <laughs> it had been well used. The guy left me his business card. That—that. That,
2: that's very <laughs> nice did. of you. If, you're ever, if ever you're out on our way and you need some Tupperware, we're here
1: to help you. I'm Bob.
2: Um, <laughs> but the I, I was... Uh, we. Um,
1: with my orchestra, we did a. a you hear that tinkling? That it's just snowflakes yes. just dropping. Yes, under. I, I try to turn this off. Uh, <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, I was um, the, the snowflake machine. So we were playing in, in Leeds, and the Australian cricket team were playing. And my brother and the bass player in my orchestra at the time were sharing a room. My bass player got back late. And so I say, OK, no, it's got the key. Well, he didn't know what room it was. So he thought, oh, I've got the key. So I'll go up quietly with my bag and just go in because my brother was asleep in the room. He goes up to the room. This is late. But he goes in and he's got the wrong room. But it is the room of none other than Merv the Swerve. Yes. Who painted his face with warlike paint. He had and a was, big handlebar mustache. Yes. And, no fuse. Um, yes. And was pretty terrifying as to behold because he was so fearsome with his bowling um, strength. And my... And Dave goes into the room, thinking it's my brother there, and he's like, puts his thing... He's like, it doesn't look like my brother's wash bag. gets his bag. He's trying to put it quite... Nice. And then this bloke in the other bed, who he thinks is my brother, goes... Dum, 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 like they do in films, turns over, and it's Merv the Swerve. <laughs> but I'd have quite like, I'd have got in that other bed well, anyway. I heard a, a story. Someone Merv. told me
1: this one. I can't remember who told me, but they said they got the wrong key, went into the room and opened the door, and there, sitting on the bed, in his underpants, was Van Morrison and he was watching the horse racing on the telly in so, his underpants on the bed. Well, who that? This sounds like someone
3: used to write on, no, that's on exactly the tell true. Well,
1: here's a truth. I know this one for fact because it was me. Uh, we'd done a show in Hull, and who's the most famous fella from Hull? Uh, Paul ha- Heaton. House Martins, yeah. Paul Heaton. He'd, he'd come to the show. I had decided I'm going to go home. I'm clearing off, so I've got a spare hotel room, and he said... Can I have it? And I said, yeah, let me just go and get my stuff. So I went up and got my stuff. And I thought, while I'm there, he's going to come into the room later on, worse for wear. I want to make it an obstacle course for him. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I got all the chairs and everything I could find and piled it all up on the bed. So there was armchairs.
2: <laughs> so <laughs>
1: babyish trick. <laughs> I mean.
2: you, weren't in
3: a, you weren't in a hotel in Morocco once, in Marrakech. <laughs> what did it happen there? The club editor of Loaded and I decided to go on holiday to Marrakech. And we got there about 3 a.m. or something, or 4 a.m., and we were walking into town. We'd taken the train down from Casablanca. We were walking in there, and eventually this car picked us up. He said, I know a cab, you know, was like broken Moroccan English. And he took us all the way through these tiny little clay building corridor. you know, like the tiny little back alleys. Through alley. the souk. Yeah, and, and it was... He took us this place, and they opened the door, and I said. Big fat guy, stinking of perno. We had a wife beat a vest on, a string vest on. It was kind of like, and he took our passports, we gave him 50 quid, and he started walking us through this building. And the first thing that was like, he put us in this room and it had a just a hole in the ceiling. It was like a prison. It was like, you know, the, those prisons they, they show you in old, you know, beaugest sort of like style films. And we said, we're not sleeping in here. There were just these horrible old foam mattresses on the floor. There's no bed in. It was boiling hot. He went, oh, 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 and he took us through this next bit. And we walked through this shower room, which had pots of paint all over the floor. It was just obvious. There was like nobody in this hotel. But because it was the middle of the night, we didn't know. It was half filled. And he took us into another room. And it looked quite new. It had a kind of fairly new door. And he opened the door. And there was no furniture in there. But as we walked into the L-shaped room, you know, the hotel shape, you go yeah. in the bathrooms immediately there and then the room opens up. Every single stick of furniture, and they were sticks, had been chopped up with an ax and were, were lined up in a huge, like, it looked like an avalanche <laughs> of furniture. It was all smashed up, like they'd built a barricade into the corner. Like they were going to burn the... Th- we just looked at each other and we went, no, no, no. We walked out, we got our passports, got the 50 quid. Finally found this other place. The woman said, yeah, you can have a room. We had to stay on the roof for a few hours until the next guest checked out. And then suddenly there was the most... God- we were so tired. We'd been travelling for hours. This was a god-awful sound. It was the worst sound I've ever heard in my life. I mean, Christ, what's that? And, and, the, and the, a bit like me in the, in the Himalayas we were rolling, the guy said, you know, oh, don't look down there. And we looked down and somebody was chopping a donkey up with an axe. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it was even like... worse than the furniture.
1: And it was... are, are all these stories in your autobiography? Yeah. Yeah, good. Well, I, I, we'll, I'll, Which I will be... We'll be finishing soon. that will be out next year, I hope. Good, well, I'll be buying that. And I think that's probably enough <laughs> for you. Thank you. <laughs> James Brown. <laughs> There goes James, travelling back home on Shanks's pony. Uh, who was Shanks? Shanks are your legs, aren't they? Of course. Of course. Like long shanks. Yes. So that means you're walking, doesn't it? Well, there he goes, striding off on another adventure. It was very illuminating. It sounds like <laughs> the like most dangerous it seems, it seems Very, very dangerous. We've got more pop-ups. I don't know. I don't know.